Today's reading is John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The word of the Lord. So this passage this morning about wine and a wedding made me think of one of my uh, favorite personal wedding stories. Uh, as a pastor, um, I've been to a lot of weddings. I've been, I've been to more weddings than I can count. I have performed weddings for people whose names I do not remember more at all. If I saw them in front of me, I would have no idea who they were. That's just sort of, none of you in this room whose wedding I've done, but that's just kind of an occupational hazard, right? You do a lot of these things, and they're special for the people, and, and they're a lot of times special for me, but you forget. But this wedding, I will never forget. It was in, uh, it was a destination wedding. Uh, it was in Sonoma, California, beautiful, beautiful wine country. And uh, the couple I was doing the ceremony for, Brittany and Chris, I'll never forget them, uh, it was their wedding. They were friends of friends of ours from the church in Ojai. And so the ceremony took place on this just picturesque, incredible. You, if you think of your mind, like, what does a vineyard estate look like in your mind with the big chateau looking out over the, the vineyards? This was the, this was the place. This is what you're picturing in your mind. That is really what this was like. It was absolutely beautiful. Could not have been more idyllic. It was late. September, and the only downside was that it was blazing hot, 95 degrees. Everyone was sweating, and so, uh, Matt, all due respect, I'll take this weather over that any day of the week. And so anyway, as the hour of the ceremony approaches, you know, they do the pictures beforehand, but then the guests arrive, and they're seated in the, these chairs, and we have this pergola under which the wedding is going to take place. And so we are, the, the wedding sort of framed where the, the people, you know, their seats are backed up against the house, and they're looking out over the land. So I mean, it's just absolutely beautiful. And there's this little guest house that we go and wait in as the guests arrive, because, you know, it's, it's, it's the groom, and it's his party, and it's myself. And so we're just waiting for the hour of the wedding to start so that all all of us can go out, assume our places, and the wedding is going to get started. And as we were standing there, you know, the groom was sweating, and it wasn't just because it was hot. 
but he was getting more and more nervous as the wedding was approaching. And, and it's not cold feet. You know, that's not what was happening at all. It's sort of that game time jitters, you know, where you know you're about to go stand up front for the most significant moment in your life to this point. That's something that naturally makes a person nervous. And so I could, I could tell he was really getting uncomfortable. He was really jittery. You know, he just couldn't stop moving. And so I said, you know, I thought I, I should give him a word of encouragement to just kind of calm him down in this moment. And I, and I told him, I went to him and I said, I put my arm on him. I said, Chris, you don't have anything to worry about. This isn't my first rodeo. And that was a true statement. Now, I, I hadn't told him that this was, in fact, only my second rodeo, the, the second wedding I had ever done in my ministerial career. Um, <laughs> but it worked. He didn't know any better, and it was true. But all that to say, right, there's something extra special about weddings. And, and this is a truth that transcends cultural. This is a transcultural truth. And though ancient Jewish weddings looked very different than a 21st century American one, they are both, or a 20th 20th century American one, uh, they are both still huge, massive deals. Both the most expensive and largest parties that that most people will ever throw in 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 their lives. That was true then, this is true now. And because weddings are so significant, they're also super stressful. Everything gets amplified at them because you have this vision in your mind of how everything is supposed to be, and that vision uh, comes into conflict with reality. So there's a lot going on here in our passage, much more than even meets the eye. But John is inviting us to to enter into this story, to find our place in it, but, but also to leave no detail, no stone unturned. To read into it as much as possible, as much theology, as much significance, as much meaning as possible. Because this isn't a miracle alone. John tells us at the end that this was the first of his, the first of Jesus' signs. It's a very important word in the Gospel of John. This isn't a miracle so much as it's a sign that manifested his glory. Matt talked about this is Epiphany Sunday. This is a text for Epiphany Sunday. It reveals something about who God is and the nature of God's kingdom in Christ. We need to see beyond what's happening here. In fact, this whole concept of signs, it's so important in John's gospel that, that some scholars divide it into the book of signs, the first 12 chapters, and the book of glory, chapter 13 to 21. And so a sign, you know, this is a special word for John. You don't need a, a, a PhD to understand what a sign is. A sign is something that points beyond itself to a greater reality. You know, now entering Minneapolis, that's the sign that lets you know about the thing you're entering into. It's what directs you towards the thing, towards the greater reality. And so, yes, in this story, Jesus turns water into wine at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. But that's not the thing. If it were, you could go, wow, cool. I, I guess strange things happen sometimes. But no, John wants us to see that what's happening here is, is, is even greater than that. That it tells us these incredibly important things about who Jesus is, what he came to do, and how we can then respond to that. Because at the end of the story, the result that really matters when John is sharing this with us is is not that there was a wedding where they thankfully dodged a bullet and didn't actually run out of wine, but that at the end his disciples believed in him. 
The goal of everything in the Gospel of John is faith. It's to move uh, those who read it and those who hear it and encounter it into a deeper place of faith, a, a, a deeper entrusting of themselves to Jesus Christ. And so this morning, as we walk through this passage and, and we turn over some of these details to look at their significance, I don't want us to take anything for granted. But I want to ask us to ask those questions. What do these little signs mean within this bigger sign of this whole story? What do those signs tell us about who Jesus is, what he came to do, and how we can relate to him? So let's just get started. Let's just walk through this passage. So it begins this way. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. So immediately, those who have any sort of familiarity with Scripture or Christianity, probably your ears may be perked up. Uh, it says, on the third day. Now, it's no accident, I think, that John used that phrase, and, and, and this is all relating to really what's happening here the first week or so of Jesus' ministry. But that on the third day language isn't an accident, it isn't incidental. Already, John is pointing us to the fact that, that this is, is resurrection language. So, on the third day, something related to the resurrection, which in John along with the cross, is the manifestation of Jesus' glory, who he really is. So something's going to be revealed to us. Continues, there was a wedding. So of all the events and incidences and settings which Jesus could have chosen to perform his first sign, what was so special about a wedding? It's not an accident. He could have chosen a funeral. Uh, he, he could have chosen people fishing uh, beside the Sea of Galilee. Uh, he, he could have chosen to, to go to the, the, the temple where worship and sacrifices were taking place. But Jesus chose a wedding. Now, one thing we can say, surely, is that by his presence at this wedding, Jesus blesses, he, he honors the institution of marriage. That, that's a truth that's captured in all the great liturgies, uh, wedding liturgies of the church going back centuries. I mean, just as a basic example, something like this you hear all over. This is the Book of Common Order. It's from the Church of Scotland, uh, and this is their wedding liturgy, and it just begins this way. Beloved, we have come together in the house of God to celebrate the marriage of this man and this woman in the assurance that the Lord Jesus Christ, whose power was revealed at the wedding, in Cana of Galilee is present with us here in all his power and his love. That's, you hear that in basically every wedding liturgy everywhere. So Jesus honors the institution. But even more germane, I think, to our interpretation, understanding of the meaning of this sign is this, that, that a wedding feast is used throughout Scripture as a metaphor for the kingdom of heaven. Scripture talks about the relationship between God and his people being like a marriage. And Jesus, in, in his parables, in his teaching about the kingdom of God, he often says, well, what, what's the kingdom of God like? What's the kingdom of heaven like? To what can I compare it? And then he'll go on to compare it to a wedding. So eternal life with God is, is depicted as a wedding feast. Because such celebrations for people, if you were trying to say, okay, what is the occasion where people are at their most happy and at their most joyous and life seems the most abundant and, and, and the feasting is the greatest? Like, like those are the best earthly approximations that Jesus has 
for what eternal life with God will be like. And so he chooses that. And so the very setting then for the sign is a part of the meaning of the sign itself. That, 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 that right here on earth at this wedding in Cana of Galilee, Jesus is going to offer a glimpse of life like it will be in heaven. The passage continues. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. So good, we know that they're not wedding crashers. They didn't just show up uninvited to this wedding. So they were invited to this wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. All right, so John sets the stage. Jesus and his disciples and his mother at a wedding. But with any story, right, a good story, it requires there to be a problem, some sort of tension, right? That's every single narrative in human history. You set the stage, you introduce the problem, and then you work towards a solution. So here we find the problem, that there is no wine. Literally, uh, what the Greek means is the wine failed, spent, Now, we might stop and go, who cares? Like, this is not that big of a problem. But, you know, weddings in that cultural context, even more so than today, there were these huge communal affairs. The expectation was that the groom's family is going to provide hospitality for everyone who comes to an event that could be up to a week long. That meant you need to have enough food and enough drink to last for the entire time. And to run out, it's a major embarrassment. And in an honor and shame culture, you're bringing shame upon your family. And it would have made it go down in local history as, oh, they're the ones who had the wedding where the wine ran out. And that's what you'd be known for forever. It's like if you think back to maybe the worst examples from elementary school, or sometimes in elementary school, we just remember, oh, that's the kid who used to pick his nose, or, or, or the kid who wet himself the one day, or, you know, like, you just remember bad details about people sometime, and that defines them. And think about that in, in a village-based honor-shame culture, what that would mean. So it's not just that, you know, hey, too bad, so sad they ran out of wine, but the risk here is that this young couple is going to start their marriage in shame, in infamy. And sensitive commentators throughout the centuries have noted that, that their problem, the problem here, the, 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 the wine gave out, the supply is exhausted, that their problem is our problem too. That eventually, whatever it is that we have, whatever resources that we have, internal or external, whatever it is we're relying upon to get us through, eventually they're going to run out. Eventually they know we are going to, we're going to reach the end of ourselves, a place where we are empty. And then we'll be faced with this question, what am I going to do about it? Mary, uh, in John, she's just called the mother of Jesus, but we know she's Mary. Uh, She stands in, though, for the faithful throughout time. In that she presumes that whatever this problem, especially the problem of emptiness, Jesus can do something about it. And so Mary tells Jesus what's happened, which leads to what some read as kind of a testy or rude exchange between Jesus and Jesus. And his mother, where Jesus basically says, you know, woman, why are you bothering me with this? This is their problem. This isn't my problem. But Jesus isn't being rude. 
And he's not saying that this isn't a big deal, which honestly, if we say that's really running out of wine at a wedding, I mean, it might be shameful for this couple, but like in the grand scheme of the universe, it's not that big of a deal. I think that would be fair to say. That's not his objection, though. And it's not that he's, you know, saying, I'm not a magician, I'm not a genie, I'm not a vending machine that's here to just sort of, you know, solve all of life's minor problems. That would also be a fair objection. No, Jesus' objection isn't any of those things. Instead, he says cryptically, my hour has not yet come. So the problem is they ran out of wine. And Jesus' explanation for his, his hesitancy in this, in this situation is that it isn't his hour. So it's not that he doesn't care. It's not that he doesn't think it's a big deal. It's not that he thinks this is an abuse or a misuse of, of his powers. No, his objection is that it's not his hour. What does that even mean? Well, thankfully, throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus talks about his hour. And whenever he does so, he is referring to the hour of his passion, of his death. And so somehow, which is just mysterious for us, we need to look at this more, somehow Jesus is connecting this request to do something about there being no wine at this wedding with his death. And we wonder, what connection could Jesus possibly be making between these two incredibly disparate and different events? This wedding, no wine, his death and his hour. What does the one have to do with the other? It's almost as if Jesus is saying that as soon as he does this sign, events are kind of going to be set in motion that will inevitably lead to his death on the cross. And I think while that might be true, there's, there's something else going on here. Jesus sees himself and his story implicated in the events that are about to unfold. Because it isn't merely about water being turned into wine and a wedding being saved. This is about Jesus' own death, as we're going to see. So Mary tells Jesus, hey, this is what's wrong. This is the problem. He says, what does this have to do with me? And she stands again for all the faithful when she says, do whatever he tells you. Now more than the faithful, I think Mary here stands in for what I hope would be every Christian minister. What more can any pastor, any sage, any spiritual guide or or leader tell you than this? What advice or counsel can we offer that improves upon the words of the mother of the Lord? And so hopefully, right, at at the end of the day, if if I were to distill what I hope my own message is down to you in a single sentence, the message for my entire ministry would be this. Do whatever he tells you. I can't add anything to that. Now, the story continues in tantalizing detail. Now, there were six stone jars, water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. So as part of any Jewish feast or or celebration, there was the necessity of providing for ritual purification. And and, and these stone jars would have been used for for either, you know, washing hands or, or for filling up ritual baths. Because the life of faith 
was a constant struggle against the things in this world that rendered one impure. And I think these past couple of years, we, we've learned a lot about the struggle for purity within our society. It's, a, it's an ancient and, and ever-present um, struggle that we face. So many things out there that can render you impure. And so these six stone jars represent uh, an ability to, to render oneself clean and pure in the world. And so this source for Jesus' wine, then, it's not an accident, and nor is the number six being, of course, the number of imperfection and incompleteness. Seven is a divine number, but six is not. Something almost diabolical about that number. And so Jesus takes what is incomplete, and he completes it. He takes water that belonged to the rituals of the old covenant, and he turns it into wine fit for the new. At the Exodus, you know, Moses' first sign in his battle with Pharaoh was to turn water into blood. And Jesus' first sign is to turn water into wine. As John said in the prologue to this gospel, you know, that, that, that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so this sign tells us then that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of God in the Old Testament. He hasn't superseded what came before so much as he came to complete what was left unfinished. And Jesus not only has them fill the jars, he says, what, fill them up to the brim. And on this detail, I, I love what the great uh, English preacher Charles Spurgeon said. He said, when you are told to believe in him, believe in him up to the brim. When you are told to love him, love him up to the brim. When you are told to serve him, serve him up to the brim. And now the final section where I hope everything comes into focus. This is when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And so here we're going to see the connection between this sign and Jesus' hour, his, his passion, his death. Here, even in, in this lived parable, enacted parable, we get the gospel in miniature. So who is Jesus in this parable He's what's called this, this figure, this master of the feast, this chief steward. It's, 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 it's a person who was essentially at a wedding, the master of ceremonies. It was this person's job to make sure that everyone was provided for, that everything went smoothly. It could be a family member, it could be someone hired by the family, but it was their job to make sure that everything worked out. And so Jesus here is taking the role, the place of the chief steward. He is the one who is giving provision for the wedding feast as a foretaste of the provision he provides for the heavenly wedding banquet. And he himself provides the wine. And as he looks at his hour, he knows that he will provide the wine for that future feast with his own blood. And no longer will people need to continually wash themselves to be rendered pure, but they will be purified once and for all. Through his wine, through his blood. And so his death, Jesus is looking forward to that 
which provides the wine. That's why this sign brings to mind Jesus' hour. And also note that in this story, in this sign, it's Jesus who does all of the work, and he gets none of the credit. Jesus is the one who turns the water into wine. But the chief steward doesn't know that. Instead, he, he goes to the bridegroom, and he gives the bridegroom all of the credit. He says, unlike any, uh, every other wedding I've ever been to, where, you know, they serve, uh, you know, the, the, the they let the people sort of get their fill. Uh, and <laughs> I like the, you know, the English Standard Version here. kind of lightens it. He says, basically, you know, once people have you know, had a little bit too much, then they bring out the cheap stuff because they can't tell a difference anyway at that point in time. He's saying, unlike any other wedding that I've ever been to, where that's where they do, you save the best wine for last. And I say, isn't this right here just the heart of the good news of the gospel? That Jesus does all the work. And we get all the credit. Jesus gets our sin. And in his place, we, we, we get his righteousness. He gets our shame. We get his honor. He gets our death. We get his life. And the great news is always that Jesus saves the best for last. He takes what's good, wine, and he makes it even better. And, and his grace, it, it knows no limits. Uh, these stone jars, you know, it talks about 20 or 30 gallons. So basically the equivalent here is about 900 bottles, you know, 750 milliliter bottles of wine. I mean, think about it. You could fill a, almost fill a total wine with that many bottles of wine, at least a, a Richfield liquor, you know, like, so that's 900 bottles of wine. More than they ever could have drank. And so the grace of God in Jesus Christ, it knows no bounds, it knows no limits, and that's good news for sinners, isn't it? It's one of those things, I love this thing, that it's, it's, the gospel sounds too good to be true so often, but I say it's too good to not be true. And so besides the, you know, simple wonder at the great good news we hear today that we see contained in this sign, there, there's so many little things that we can just practically take away from this passage. And the first is this, that it's okay to give Jesus the small stuff, trusting that he can do great things with that. You know, don't minimize your problems and, and believe that God doesn't care. God can major in our minors. Mary saw the problem, she brought it to Jesus. Even if we think in the grand scheme of things it's not that big of a deal, that was the occasion for his first sign. Second, coming to Jesus empty. Reaching the end of ourselves, our resources, our desire to fix or justify or save ourselves, we can just come to him empty and recognize that's where grace begins. Where we end is where his grace begins and third, like Mary, we can believe that whatever our problem is, ultimately, he's the solution. And fourth, like Mary, we, you know, the answer from Jesus was ambiguous. She didn't give up. Grace delayed isn't prayer denied. And fifth, like the servants, we, we, we just listen to him. Do whatever he tells you. Even if it seems super simple. I mean, it's not like the uh, servants had that much to do. They just had to fill and draw and take. It was not complicated. And finally, I think this is the most essential thing of all to understand, though, that 
that what we see in this sign is that Jesus is in the transformation business. That's what he does. That's what he's about. You know, and, and, and who we are isn't ultimately who we will be. The grace of God and our Lord Jesus Christ it can and will change us in, into what we really are in him. And, and this change is a process. Sometimes it happens right away, but oftentimes it's slow. And St. Augustine, when he, when he talks about this miracle, he says, you know, uh, that, you know, this, what is normally a slow process, water becoming wine, it, it, we see it instantaneously here. But, but, but he says, don't neglect that God's grace is operative in the world, you know, taking the water that falls down in, 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 in the form of rain and nourishes the crops that, that grow on the vine and then get turned into wine. He's saying that itself is a process, a miraculous process. But here we get to see it collapsed into a moment. And so trust that we are not finished products and, and, and that we're not done and there's still more grace in him than there is sin in us. And so when things seem hopeless, when we seem like we're stuck or, or we're lost, that, that, that's just a sign uh, that we need this sign from him. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.